once again to the book of Acts. Today we'll be uh, reading a fairly long portion of the scripture. This is Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. This is uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. Hear now the word of God. <coughs> At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with uh, one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called uh, two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went, went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there, were, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again and a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed at, um, as to what uh, the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent from, by, by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down uh, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. But Peter went down to the men, uh, well, excuse me, and Peter went down to the men and said, I am, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? <clears throat> and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, uh, upright and God-fearing man who is well known, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away uh, with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had gathered together all of his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, picking him up, said, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I, sent for, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I, went for, uh, so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This ends the reading. God's holy and errant and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. I, I, can, I, I wasn't hearing myself. Now I, now I can hear myself just fine. I'm assuming y'all can as well. Um, uh, <clears throat> back when my wife and I moved uh, uh, to Huntsville from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, um, my first session meeting uh, with the session of, of Westminster was a, it was a new experience. I had been to several session meetings, and one thing that I really appreciated about theirs was they would send about the first 30 minutes or so in their session meetings just in prayer for the congregation. They would go around the room and the elders would make prayer requests for the people in their shepherding groups. They would make uh, prayer requests for themselves and things like that. And when they got around the table, it eventually reached the pastor, Joe Steele. And this was also new because his prayer request was for me. Now, I had been prayed for before. I've heard people pray for me. This is the first time I ever heard somebody request prayer for me while I was actually in the room. So this kind of perks my interest. I've been here for five minutes. Why do I need prayer so bad? And his answer was this. He said when he was in the Marine Corps, the Marines did a study on uh, things that were um, stressing out their, their members, uh, things that were causing anxiety and uh, some, some, some of the mental health crises you have there in the military. And they came up with three top contenders for things that would induce anxiety for uh, the military. And, and they were new marriage, new job, and new home. Joe told the session that, and he says, and Pastor Robinson here has done all three of those things in the past nine months. I thought that was kind of funny because I actually didn't have a whole lot of anxiety. I actually had a lot of excitement. I loved being married. I also loved my new hometown. And as far as the job goes, it was a job. The job was in a different place, but it was the same job. I got to bring my own curriculum over from Hattiesburg. I was teaching the same classes. And you know, if you've been in education, you don't teach the same kids every single year. So, I mean, it was easy. It was exciting. And this, like I was telling the kids down here, it was really the same thing with me coming here. Yes, it's a new place, but it's a place that really kind of just reminds me of home. It's a new job, but man, I, I, like I'll come into my office or I'm sitting there speaking with somebody or preaching, and I think, this is the greatest job in the entire world. And yes, I still like being married. I still love my wife. I still love my family. Why are you laughing so hard, Hillary? <laughs> I do. It has been great, but we all know that not all change is exciting. There is a lot of change that produces anxiety when you move, when you don't want to move, when you have to change jobs, even though you don't want to change jobs. Or in my case, when a job changes while you're still there. I mean, one of the things that eventually brought me here to Salem was uh, when I first got to Westminster, the school announced that they were making some pretty big changes. And I didn't think those were a big deal. And for the first couple of years, it wasn't. But when I hit year four, it became very clear that what I was capable of doing was no longer what the school needed me to do. And what they were wanting me to do was really outside of what I could give to them. And that was hard. I enjoyed being a teacher. I enjoyed, being, I enjoyed doing what I did, but 
It's not that what they were doing was bad. It was good. I just, I just could not do it. That, call, that fourth year was hard, hard on me and hard on my family. Our text today is going to highlight both reactions to change. There is the joyous, happy reaction to change when it's exciting. But then there is also going to be the side where it's anxiety-inducing and pain-inducing. Next week, we'll look at the, the negative side of change. But this morning, I want us to focus on the happy side of change from the perspective of Cornelius the Gentile, who was once apart from God and apart from his people, who is now being reconciled to God and to his people. And those are our two points today, us being reconciled to God and us being reconciled to his people. Before we dig into this, I want you to uh, take in your Bible, take your Bibles and turn with me over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read for you verses 11 through 15. As you're turning there, let me just kind of explain to you uh, what we're doing with this. Um, whenever I prepare a sermon, I use commentaries. and I, like, I'm not smart enough to not need any help whatsoever. I need a lot of help, all the help I can get. But commentaries will often disagree with one another on an interpretation. So it's always nice when you can find an inspired and infallible interpretation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, particularly verses 12 and 13, you have an infallible commentary on what is happening in the household of Cornelius and in Peter's vision. Hear what Paul says uh, there in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in, him, create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. The two men there are the Gentiles and the Jews. They have been separated for thousands of years. And now, by the blood of Jesus Christ, they are becoming one. In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. But in order for us to be reconciled with one another, in order for us to be reconciled with people who don't look or sound or act anything like us, we must first be reconciled with God. And that is our first point today, are being reconciled with God. Why? Let's go way back in the time machine. Why do we need to be reconciled with God in the first place? It goes back to the first three chapters of the Bible, that God creating the heavens and the earth and creating everything good. He crowns his creation with the creation of Adam and Eve, and he creates them in his own image. But they fall from grace. They fall out of communion with God. And they enter into a state of sin and misery. We were made 
to worship God. We were made to be in communion with God. But because of sin, we are separated from that communion. And that is where death comes from. That is where death enters into our realities. I mean, just think about how God creates in the first place. When he creates the fish of the sea, who does he talk to? He speaks to the sea. He says, bring forth fish. When he creates the beast of the field, who does he talk to? He speaks to the earth, bring forth beast and creeping, crawling things. But when he creates man, who does he speak to? He speaks to himself. He says, let us make man in our own image. We were created to live in communion with him. The presence of God is the environment in which we live. And when we are outside of that environment, we are very much like fish out of water. We flop, we hurt, we can't breathe, and we die. Communion with God, his presence among us, that is our environment but what happens after the fall they are kicked out of that environment they leave the garden God puts an angel there at the gates of the garden and says you stay there and protect the tree of life lest they come in and eat of it and live forever they must die they are away from the garden but God is not going to suffer to have his crown jewel his image bearers just forsaken in their state of sin, misery, and death. He begins a, a rescue plan where he's going to bring about a redeemer who will come from a family, the family of, of Seth, the family of, of Noah, the family of Abraham. God goes to Abraham and he makes him a promise. This is the promise. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. The Abrahamic covenant's goal was not to save the family of Abraham alone. The goal of the covenant with Abraham was that through Abraham's offspring, he would save people from every tongue and tribe, and nation, that he was going to reconcile the world to himself. He provides that people with civil national laws that protect them. He provides them with ceremonial religious laws that, that sanctify them from the rest of the world. But there was a day that was coming when all those laws could be set aside because they would have accomplished their work. The son of Abraham, the son of Isaac and Jacob, the son of Judah would come into his world and he would redeem that world for God. That he would forgive his people of their sins, remove them as far as the east is from the west, and they will be brought into his presence forever and ever. What you're seeing in your text today in Acts chapter 10 is that coming into its fulfillment. It's already been fulfilled in the work of Christ, but now it's being shown as being fulfilled. We'll even see this later on when 
when the household of Cornelius would receive their own Pentecost-type moment. That just like the Jews did in Acts chapter 10, the house of Cornelius is going to have the same event. Why? Because God wants us to be absolutely certain that the promise that he had made to Abraham, the promise that he had made to Mary when he promised her that your child will crush the head of the serpent, that that has been fulfilled. And you see this right here in our text, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he, being Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now, if you're reading that text, there's one part that you're going to pass over. It's going to be the time of day, the, the ninth hour. That's not a throwaway detail. That's an extremely important detail because that was the hour of the evening sacrifices in the temple. It was an hour that was consecrated for the Israelites to be given in prayer. It's like you think of like Muslims. They all pray at the same time facing, facing toward Mecca. The Jews would do the same thing. If you couldn't be there at the temple at 3 o'clock for the, for the sacrifices, you bowed your head, you fell on your knees, you pointed toward Jerusalem, and you prayed. That's what Cornelius is doing here. But he's not doing it because he just can't make it to the temple. He's doing it because he can't go into the temple. He is a God-fearer. He is a pious man. He is a charitable man, giving money to the Jews. He is well spoken of by the entire nation. But he cannot come into their temple. He can only, uh, he can only view from a distance. And that hour of prayer, as the sacrifices and the smoke from the sacrifices are, are rising up to God, a pleasing aroma in his presence, so were the prayers of this Gentile God fear it was a pleasing aroma to the lord and it was coming from a gentile this gives such weight to what the angel says to cornelius in verse four he says your prayers and your arm alms have ascended as a memorial before god this is his sacrifice they are acceptable in god but why if he's not a Jew, how are they acceptable to God? Is it because he is praying and serving in the way that David speaks of in Psalm 51? O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. That is the prayer of Cornelius. But in Psalm 51, that's, that's King David speaking, the king of the Jews. Cornelius is a, not just a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, a commander of 100 invaders of Israel. This is not the king of Israel. This is not the king of the Jews. This is the invader of the Jews. And his prayer and his alms have been seen as acceptable in the eyes of God. And the angel comes to him and gives him a message filled with eternal blessings. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I cannot help but bring to your attention the contrast between Cornelius in these early passages and Cornelius later on in verses 44 through 47. 
this is what this is what the text says. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the uncircumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have Notice the magnitude and the totality of our being reconciled with God. The Gentile who is uncircumcised receives a sign of being baptized in the death and blood of Jesus Christ. He is cleansed of all uncommonness, all uncleanness. So much so that he himself a Roman centurion who cannot enter into the temple of God becomes the temple of God. The temple of God is no longer made of stone. It's no longer in Jerusalem. It's in the heart of Cornelius, an invading Gentile. It's in the heart of sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is the extent and the totality of your salvation. How saved are you? Salvation is not contingent upon you getting better. Yes, you will get better. This is what I mentioned a while ago. Yes, you will get better. You will become more like Christ. But that is not the foundation of your salvation. That is not, that is not what you bring to God when you go into his courtroom and say, look how good I got. I was really bad at first, but then I got a little bit better. No. You come to God with the blood of Christ on your hands and say, Behold, your son has made me clean. That is the foundation of our hope. That is the foundation of our eternal life. Yes, good works will proceed from it, but that is our hope and that is our joy and it extends into every fiber of our being. How saved are you? The high priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies in this temple made with hands once a year, and then only before having made sacrifices for himself. You are the temple of God. You carry God with you everywhere you go. And there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that your enemies can do. There's nothing that your government can do. There's nothing that all the powers of hell can do to drag God out of his temple. He is there forever and ever and ever. That is a wonderful and beautiful thing. He will not forsake his new temples, the temples of our heart. And so you, just as Cornelius, who were once alienated from God, have been brought near to him. But there is a second form of alienation that the Gentiles suffered. And this is alienation from the people of God. But here's the thing. Christ Jesus is reconciling the Gentiles with the Jews as well. Listen again to what, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were apart from God, 
because you're apart from the covenants, because you're apart from his people. That is a humbling statement right there. Paul is not mincing words. Alienation from God's people is no different than alienation from God. In the Old Testament, to be excommunicated from Israel was to be cast out into the outer darkness. And the same is true for the church. In fact, there's no difference between the church and Israel. You know what the reformers and the early church fathers would commonly refer to Old Testament Israel in their writings? The Old Testament church. You know what Paul calls the New Testament church in his letters? New Covenant Israel. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free. There is no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ, you are the new Israel. You are more a child of Abraham than any Jew who ever lived. And so just as in the Old Testament, to be alienated from God was to be alienated from God's people, so it is in the New Testament. To be alienated from God is to be alienated from his church. Church membership, church attendance even, is such a precious thing. This is where we come to commune with God as we commune with his people. We come to love God and to love his people. You know, you know how you know if you love God or not? Do you love his people? Do you love his church? Because if you hate his church, there's so many people who speak of it this way. Well, I love, I love Jesus. I love God. But, oh, man, all those hypocrites at church. I just, I just can't stand them. You're hating the body of Christ. You're hating the one who Christ gave his life for. You're hating the one who God has beset his eternal and everlasting love upon. That doesn't mean that you can't be frustrated with your church. Believe me, I've been frustrated more than enough. But we mustn't hate the church. To hate the church is to hate the bride of the church, the groom of the church. The person who is united with Christ. And it is this fact that should make your fellow congregants precious in your sight. They are covered in the blood of the Lamb of God. They're covered in the blood of your Savior, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. He also gave his life for them as well. This changes our perspective of the church. This changes our perspective of those around us. This is what changes the perspective of Cornelius when he walks into the house of Cornelius. He goes into his house. Um, Cornelius bows down. He begins to worship him. And Peter's like, please, don't do that. I am just a man. But then he, he, he begins to say to them, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. He's no longer looking at Cornelius through old covenant eyes. He no longer sees an invading Roman. He no longer sees an unclean Gentile. He sees a brother in Christ and his family. That has totally changed his perspective. 
And when we see the church as family, when we see them as being our flesh and blood, it makes them more beautiful in our sight than they really ought to be. Let me explain this to you. Uh, this was probably right before, once again, Hillary and I moved to Huntsville. Uh, I was taking her uh, through the back roads of Winston County, Mississippi, where, like, they don't pave roads there. Everything's just red, dirt, clay, and everything's filthy and dirty. We're driving down these dirty, red, dirt roads, and we come to a, a house that's all dilapidated. Vines are growing over it doors hanging out the hinges all the windows are broken out and as we're driving by it Hillary's in the middle of saying oh that bless anybody bless anybody's heart who has to walk into a house like that and as she's saying that I pull into the driveway um and I get out and I walk in the front door and to her terror I drink I bring her with me bring her to the front door walk her through the living room and I take her into the kitchen where the cabinets are painted about the same color as the carpet is in here. And I show her uh, the counter there where my grandmother was, was splitting a watermelon and she slipped and dropped the butcher knife on my foot. That was my first time being stabbed. I took her out the back door and I showed her the old barn where my brother and I used to chase cats. Um, took her back inside and I showed her the, the living room where the Christmas tree used to be and where my grandfather uh, used to sit. You see, it was a hideous house. Hillary was not wrong. I mean, it's I mean, covered with prescription pill bottles, and I'm pretty sure it was used as a drug house since then. But to me, as dilapidated and as hideous as it was, I mean, I was basically in tears thinking of the life that I shared with my family there in that house. It was hideous to her, but hideous to anybody in this room. But to me, my grandmother, my uncle, my brother, my mom, it's beautiful. It still has a place in our hearts. This is the people sitting next to you. Some of us are hard to deal with. The one sitting in the pulpit can be hard to deal with at certain times. But don't see me as I, don't see me as your eyes would see me. See me as God sees me, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and made clean and pure. But this doesn't just make us more, more beautiful. It makes us more valuable because of the great price that was placed upon our heads. You see, God did not bring us into his family by just saying, yeah, that's fine, just come on. He sent a son, the righteous one, perfect in every way, a clean slate, so that he can place upon him my sins and pour out his hellish wrath not because of anything that his son did because of what I did and because of what he did the people sitting next to you are of an infinite value we have a crisis of, of identity a crisis of value in our world right now we're told that a, an unborn child has no value beyond the convenience and life choices of the parents we're told that our, our youth are told that they have no value outside of their outside of their gender or outside of their sexual proclivities or outside of their skin color. The Proverbs tell us that God hates an uneven balance. That is an evil and uneven balance. That is not the value of anybody. Even if you're not a Christian, you still have the value of being an image bearer of God. 
But Paul says in Galatians 6, we are to do good to everyone, but especially those in the household of faith. You know why? Because it's great to be made in the image of God. It's another thing to be purchased, purchased by the blood of God. That is where our value lies. There's a value, a price tag that cannot be taken away from us. It is ours once and forever by faith in Jesus Christ and in faith in him alone. That is, you've been, through his blood, you've been reconciled with God. You've been reconciled with Israel. You've been reconciled with those sitting next to you. They are your brothers. Jesus is your brother. And God is your father. Praise God for the totality of our redemption in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your grace. I thank you so much that that grace comes to us, as Paul said, not in the way of commandments or ordinances, but by way of a promise. That the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ came to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Father, I thank you so much that I, we, I and we have a free access to your throne. May we please cherish that access. And may we also see us coming together and communing, communing as the body of Christ in this world. May we see church as not being a social club or being someplace where we can go and check a box or, heaven forbid, a place we can go to impress you. But, Father, may this be seen to be a place where we might come and receive the water of life that flows from the side of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And print his name upon our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen.